very good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Sean. This is Alex. And you're listening to Coaster Kings Radio. Today's episode is about Islands of Adventure at Universal Orlando Resort. This is often called like the great theme park experience uh, of the Western Hemisphere. When it was built, it was certainly the most ambitious and thrilling and remarkable theme park concept in the world. It was super lofty and to this day remains one of the most commanding and exceptional gates industry-wide I feel like there's only been the two occasions at which an existing theme park resort built a second gate where the second gate immediately was better than the first gate. Um, the other one I can think of is Tokyo Disney Sea. I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask. Maybe the local audience really prefers all the, you know, the, the flashiness of a classic yeah. Disney park. But when you ask me, I think Disney Sea right away came out on top. I- and the same with yeah. Islands of Adventure at Universal when it opened in 1999. Yeah. When I went to Islands of Adventure opening year, between the two parks, it was just there was no contest which, which park really captured the moment and the attention and the, the news, the, the notoriety. Even though Universal Studios Florida is a perfectly fine park, it's a nice park, but Islands of Adventure, pretty much in every aspect, kind of blows it away. Um, so today we just want to talk about the park and do like a little virtual walkthrough. So kind of like we did with Magic Bottom last season, we uh, did a virtual walkthrough of the park. We're doing the same thing today uh, with Universal's Islands of Adventure. Kind of taking a look at most of the major attractions that the park has to offer, their history, what we think of it, you know, just kind of giving you guys a virtual tour with some opinions along the way. This park has a really rich history. Um, as early as the 1980s, the plot that Islands of Adventure currently sits on was primed for development. Before Universal even opened, they looked at putting a shopping mall there. Um, those plans were canceled once Universal opened and then Universal acquired the land. Shortly after Universal Studios Florida opened, the plans for a second gate and an overall theme park resort complex with hotels and a restaurant and shopping district pretty much immediately hit the ground running. And from the get-go, Islands of Adventure was pretty much exactly as it is now. Conceptually, it was a focus on larger-than-life themes, primarily cartoons. In fact, the original name of the park, the running name for the park project was Cartoon World. Um, And the main reason why they went in a different direction from just focusing on animated stuff like Dr. Seuss and Toon Lagoon and whatnot was actually the runaway success of Jurassic Park and the obvious need for not only a Jurassic Park ride like at Universal Studios Hollywood, but um, the opportunity to build an entire Jurassic Park subsection inside of the new gate. So... With that in mind, and with some other concepts like Port of Entry and Lost Continent, which were going to be 100% unique in their, uh, I guess, not so much, no, no intellectual properties, like unique to Universal Creative, just letting their, their creative team run wild and, and develop their own world building based on historical and mythological backgrounds and stuff. So both of these concepts came together, the larger-than-life Um, ultra-realistic fantasy environments of places like Jurassic Park and Lost Continent together seamlessly woven in with the cartoon world concepts that were carried over from the earlier uh, intentions of the park, namely Toon Lagoon, Seuss Landing, and a comic book-themed area. And together they all came together to create this really seismic um, theme park experience with 
what is it, six? I mean, how many lands? I mean, we've got, there's more lands now than there were when it opened. More islands. I guess islands. at the end of the episode, we'll know exactly how many yeah. islands there are. But yeah, there are several islands now because um, it just kind of depends on if you actually count what's separated by water and what isn't. Yeah. Um, but technically speaking, for example, Skull Island is its own island. Yeah, there isn't like I think a separation, like but water the eighth island. I think there's eight if you count Skull Island as its own island. So let's dive right into these islands. We'll start with the port of entry. Um, as many of you guys know, the entry of the park um, is <laughs> themed to a Mediterranean-ish explorer kind harbor. of harbor um, that looks out on the central lagoon. So you enter the park, you cross underneath the bridge, um, and then you face the park's central lagoon. Now in this area, um, it's mostly gets designed as most park entries with like shopping and dining, um, park entry guest services, stroller rental, lockers, Restrooms, the main gift shop for the store uh, for the um, for the park, which is the Islands of Adventure Trading Company, and then there is um, a couple of other specialty stores like the Christmas store that's open year round, mm -hmm. and there is a um, a snack kind of store where you can buy, I guess, fudge and candies and that sort yeah. of stuff. You know the usual, and then there is a little bakery called Half Moon Croissant. Croissant, croissant Moon. Croissant bakery. Moon Bakery. <laughs> Half Moon <laughs> Croissant. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> Anywho, and then there's also a Starbucks, Starbucks. and a um, and a Cinnabon. A Cinnabon. <laughs> so those are all located kind of in the in the entry area. And then when you walk towards the water, you can actually get you can actually get right onto the water. There's some small walkways, which is a really big thing for Islands of Adventure. We'll mm -hmm. talk about it a little bit more throughout the episode. But there too, you can kind of get close to the water. There's a couple of vendors there. Um, one of just you know paintings with your name, Ooh. or if you just need like a bottle of water because it's super brutally hot out because it's Florida. Funko pop. You know, get that there. Funko pop <laughs> stuff. So it's it's definitely a very entryish area, but it's nicely themed just for the sure. Necessities. Yes, of course, the Funko pops. <laughs> lemon, lemon slush. Um, yeah, I I do love the execution of this area. This this area has the same general vibe. I always kind of associated this area and Lost Continent as as having very much the same approach with like very over-the-top theming and kind of blurring the lines between fantasy and reality. I love that the the port of entry isn't just the entrance of the park and it's not just like a Mediterranean themed like harbor trade port but it really is symbolic of the first stop, your threshold um, to these different islands um, that you will be exploring uh, on your visit to the park. And I think the area has aged really well. It looks even better now than it did when it opened. The trees have grown in. There's lots of little details and things. Um, the soundtrack is iconic. And it's just a great... It's just really... I still get excited going in there. I mean, the, it's just such a, a lovely spot to start. It really puts the, the Main Street USAs of the world... Uh, to shame when it comes to... Well, the nice to... thing about the port of entry is that it's not as large, it's not as long. I feel like a lot of parks, and especially Disney parks, I'm looking at you, like the castle parks, there's such a long entry that when you want to get to a ride, unless you're in Tokyo where they have the shortcuts, yeah. it, it, it's a journey to get it's there. It's a process. But here, it's you know you get into the park and into the action pretty quick. Um, another nice thing about the area is the Confisco Grill, oh, yeah. which Universal does have really good in-park restaurants. Um, you know, Disney obviously is often more frequently discussed when it comes to dining because that's a bigger focus for them. Um, but Confisco Grill, for example, is, is a great establishment. We eat there all the time. And then there's a second level that's usually used for special events. Um, but during COVID, they had it open for pass holders. So we actually sat on the balconies above the port of entry buildings before. Yeah, it's really like a nice. special event space normally. Yeah, and then there's also Backwater Bar, which is the, mm -hmm. one of the bars of Universal located also right on the side of Confisco Grill. 
And then we'll kind of head in that direction and we'll yeah. lead to our next land, which is Sue's, uh, Dr. Sue's Landing. Sue's Landing? Yeah, Sue's Landing. Um, which is obviously themed to the infamous Dr. Seuss. I always thought this area was really funny because as a kid I had no clue what the hell Dr. Seuss was because, you know, born and raised in Europe, I hadn't really been exposed to it much except for The Grinch or How The Grinch Stole Christmas and I mm. guess I saw the Cat in the Ham movie once, but that was about my exposure <laughs> to that whole, the whole franchise. Remember when we rode the Cat in the Hat ride the first time together and you thought, you expected it to be based on the movie? I know. And you were like, I thought this was a boat ride. Like, Honestly, I was, hoping, I was hoping, I was hoping it would be kind of like the Mike Yeah. But everyone hated. And this ride actually, this whole area actually predates, because um, the park opened in May of 1999, and the live action Dr. Seuss films um, predate, uh, this area predates those films by about a year. For a long time you could see um, Whoville from The Grinch, the live action Grinch, um, with Jim Carrey at the... Uh, Universal Studios Hollywood Tram Tour. Unfortunately, they just recently demolished it, but it was a really cool set piece that you could in, you could enjoy. Well, yeah, because in the winters for uh, for Grinchmas, they would actually stop the tram there. There would be a whole like musical yeah. processional show for every single tram yeah. with the the Grinch um, and all the you know the Whoville people's Whovillation celebration situation. Uh -huh. Like it was all happening. Yeah, yeah it was kind of cool. I feel like this is such a quintessential Islands of Adventure experience. It's very American, like you said, like. This is a, an American culture kind of experience for people from overseas. Test marketing was not really a thing when this park was being developed, and they were not really yet concerning themselves with, like, market appeal for the entire world. Yeah. Which is why I think later Universal projects take on franchises. Not only are they franchises that Universal either owns, or in the case of Harry Potter, something that they... Franchise. Yeah, that they franchise out. Because Dr. Seuss, in retrospect, was a funny choice. Like, it made a lot of sense for America to attract people from across the country. Around the world, people are like, they don't know so as much. They wouldn't be as familiar with it. But on the other hand, you can come to Islands of Adventure as a foreigner and go to Seuss Landing and get a uniquely American classic experience um, brought to life in a very thoughtful and careful way. In fact, this area of the park was, like, the first part of the park to get to, for them to get started with and it was the last to finish because they had a hard time getting the Seuss camp convinced um, that they could do this. There was a, there was the, the Seuss family was concerned with the approach and the authenticity. Everything went through them. Everything that they did had to be approved um, through the Seuss camp which I think is part of the reason why the area turned out so nicely because um, they really had no choice but to do justice to the source material. So but, yeah, within Dr. Seuss, or Seuss Landing, sorry, everything, the kind of, the, the whole approach is that there's no straight line. So even the palm trees were actually damaged palm trees from Hurricane Andrew. Mm -hmm. They were re-transplanted. So everything is kind of like, you know, curvy and, and weird. Um, but the main attractions, of course, are the Cat in the Hat dark ride. Quite large for, a, for a family dark ride. Not super polished, but underrated. We actually ride it quite frequently. It's yeah. a spinning dark ride. Quite fun. Um, and of course, there's the high in the sky dark. Sorry, high in the sky Seuss trolley tram ride. ride. Way too many words, and you know, I mean, that's just like that's a theme for this park. Very American <laughs> again. No, it's very Universal <laughs> Studios, honestly. Um, so that's a, a dueling monorail slash Mac powered coaster combination that kind of goes throughout the land and then comes back to the station. It was supposed to be individual vehicles on a monorail track when it first was supposed to open. That was a complete disaster. So the track actually sat there, half constructed, 
for a couple of years before Mac it actually sat there came for in. Seven years. Before Mac came in and actually built on top of that using what was already constructed as supports um, and built like a flat powered coaster kind of attraction. It has the same restraints like a power coaster would. A Mac flower and um, it has you know the same kind of track and the same lines that run all over it, except it doesn't really do anything power coaster is, it moves kind of slow. But um, really cool attraction nonetheless, because it's kind of like a monorail vibe, you get to mm. see the whole park, it's relaxing, but it is really popular and the lines will get very long for it. The company that built it was this little no-name startup and it was built and was functional. In fact, when we went in 1999, they were just using it as complex scenery. They were just sending the vehicles out empty. by themselves, yeah. empty. And the city, the state of Florida did not approve the ride for operation because there was no way to evacuate the ride over areas of like water and sand where there was no way to put like a cherry picker there and no catwalks. So you'll notice the ride is very catwalk centric. There's every, every valley uh, that the ride has, um, has a, a major catwalk system so that people could walk down. It was a huge infrastructural undertaking to bring Seuss, High in the Sky Seuss Trolley Tram ride to life uh, using the bones of the Sylvester McMucky McBean's very unusual driving machines ride. But now that it's open, it just seems so natural. Like it was always, it was always like that, and it's a great asset for the area. People really love it. It's kind of, it's sort of the kitty coaster in this area that is sort of the kitty area. Granted, there's there's great stuff to do in every area, and each each island has stuff for kids. But this is sort of the this like the it's kind of the area, designated sure. family area. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Of course, is the obligatory Dumbo style ride. And you have the Carousel, which again is super family friendly. This is their fantasy yeah, like a, land. If I ran the zoo, walk yeah. through. So there's quite a bit to do for and kids. Lots there. to walk around in, but yeah, it's just a, it's just a w great, well-rounded area that is still really well maintained. And as the live-action Grinch film has been entering cult classic status, they've really dug their heels in. And, and the Grinchmas event that they have, that's really kind of. Uh, so Dr. Seuss was like the first area of Islands of Adventure that participated in like any sort of holiday festivities for the resort. Um, aside, like with, with, with studios doing Halloween Horror Nights and Islands of Adventure tested it one year and it was a disaster. It was kind of cool though. It was, Islands of Adventure. Because it actually yeah. took the themes of the lands and they built maze and stuff for it. So it was like <laughs> perfect Marvel stuff with like dying superheroes. I mean, it was. I mean, there, there's whole videos on on YouTube, check it out, but yeah. I guess we won't go off the path too much. Let's uh, hop over to the next area. Oh, yeah. Which is one of the original kind of like blue sky ideas, which is um, Lost Continent, which used to be... What's parts. left of Lost Continent? Now it's two parts. <laughs> yeah. It really isn't much to do anymore, uh, especially with Poseidon Fury closed. Apparently ending, it's reopening. reopening. That whole attraction had its own history. Um, the, it opened, it was one of the most expensive attractions in the park. Um, ended up being not so loved by the audience. People just thought it was dragged on for too long. The story was hard to follow. It, was, it actually went about Poseidon and his arch enemy deep down in the city of Atlantis. And it was just too much going on. So then they redid the whole story and the whole um, cast and guest interaction aspect of it. Redid the special effects. It's been running for quite some years. It, it is a time commitment for sure. Um, they closed during the pandemic because they had to just cut some attractions, and now it is currently closed for what seems to be a major refurbishment, but we'll see what we get out of that. Also in the area is the infamous Mythos restaurant. Often has won the best in-park theme park restaurant in the world award. We really like eating there. Um, awesome food, awesome drinks, and honestly, if it's not too brutally hot out, 
Um, sit outside and like sit on a lagoon, take a look at you know, the rest of Islands of Adventure from the restaurant. But yeah, we really like yeah, the restaurant. Yeah, great views of all the rides from that outdoor patio in Mythos. Um, but yeah, so uh, Lost Continent, when it opened, was originally the largest area of the park. And it, to me, it seemed like the area of the park that the most budget went to. Again, such a a lost art of like pouring lots and lots of money into theme park areas that do not have intellectual property source material. Um, but it was just about creating an immersive thematic experience that was going to age well and develop a reputation for being a strong draw. Um, there were three neighborhoods inside the Lost Continent. There was the Atlantis area, of course, which we just covered. The second area, kind of sandwiched in the middle, was um, Sinbad's Bazaar. That's what it's called. And parts of Sinbad's Bazaar are still intact. There was a Midway Games area of Sinbad's Bazaar that was annexed by Harry Potter during the second phase of the Harry Potter world expansion at the resort where the train station was built to King's Cross at the uh, Studios Park. Um, the signature attraction for Sinbad's Bazaar, aside from just the shopping and dining, was the Sinbad Stunt Show, which had a pretty good, had a, had a good 20-year run um, before, I think it was 2018, like it closed permanently, like right before we moved here, I think. And um, so now the stage area is just kind of shuttered. They were using it for overflow queue for Hagrid when Hagrid first opened. They still do. Yeah, yeah they still do, I guess, on the busiest of busy days. It was a really neat experience. Like, for considering that the resort never built Waterworld, and to this day it feels like Waterworld is missing it's weird for from the, the resort. resort. It's the only resort that does not have Waterworld. Beijing, fact, Beijing has, Waterworld. has a whole Waterworld area, especially like designed to be all Waterworld themed and like. There's dining, well not really dining, but there's more of like, there's vendors, and then you have the giant queue and all the movie props, and you have the actual stage, like, it is a giant area in Beijing, and somehow we still don't have one here in, in, in Orlando. Especially. Even Singapore, like, their Jurassic Park area is like a hybrid with Waterworld, and their whole area is called the Lost World. Um, but yeah, so, the Sinbad stunt show was kind of like, one answer to having a, a stunt-themed variety show indoor in place of um, something like Waterworld. And it was, yeah, it was a success, and it was a great anchor for the little, this subsection of Lost Continent. The third Lost Continent area, which is no longer with us, Merlinwood, of course, had the e-ticket roller coaster experience. Uh, the, <laughs> the dearly departed Dueling Dragons. Um, so, when you consider these three areas together, Merlinwood also had a great restaurant, the Enchanted, Enchanted Tree Tavern, which is now the Three Broomsticks. Um, these three areas put together little subsections to make Lost Continent was an incredibly well-rounded and spectacular area that included a special effects show, a stunt show, and a enviable ultra-high-capacity e-ticket thrill-ride roller coaster experience. And then the following year, um, they added the Flying Unicorn, which we still have today as uh, the flight of the Hippogriff. So yeah, let's dive into uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Um, the original, original, original idea for a Harry Potter attraction actually was proposed to Universal Studios Hollywood as a Quidditch slash Voldemort meets Harry Potter at the end of the show show. Um, that didn't really take off. Then um, it was turned into a proposal for Fantasyland in Magic Kingdom. <laughs> Obviously J.K. Rowling was not very am amused with the whole idea of like incorporating it as a couple of attractions including like a spinning cauldron ride. Yeah, it was like in, a in Fantasyland. Like it just, it just wasn't going to be a thing. And then she really wasn't satisfied and then Universal saw they could really get a leg up and they really needed a leg up. 
um, at this time. And so they approached JK and pretty much did anything she wanted. And it was by far the best move the company has ever made. Yeah. Because Universal Orlando Resort, ever since opening Isles of Adventure, never really got the attendance um, that they needed. And this was a, and combined with a marketing fail when it came to relaunching the resort as Universal Escape. Yes. People had no clue what the hell Universal yeah. Escape was. They didn't realize there was two theme parks. They thought all these market attractions are part of the existing theme park. Big, big mess. Then you have a couple of years of trying to like, you know, rebuild from that from that mistake, and then you have a you know international global um, downfall of the of the of the economy, and then you know so they kind of always struggled, and so when they got Potter, that was the first time that they really really got things right, and their attendance picked up significantly. I don't have the exact number here, but I'm pretty sure the attendance was about like thirty percent in one year when they opened Harry Potter. It was a really, was really good numbers. Unprecedented. And so in 2010, when it opened Wizarding World of Harry Potter, yes, they rethemed the Dueling Dragons roller coaster to become Dragon Challenge, themed after the fourth movie, the second challenge, or the first challenge? The first challenge? Isn't the first challenge the underwater challenge? No, that's the second challenge, because okay. you get the egg from the dragon. And See, the egg I haven't watched the Goblet so of Fire first, since it was in theaters. <laughs> so, Goblet of Fire's first challenge was the Dragon Challenge. That's what it's themed, well, that was what the roller coaster was rethemed to. The roller coaster was never meant to stay, because J.K. Rowling wasn't the biggest fan of Dueling Dragons. But it was one of those things where if you're going to open a giant new area or like a, a relatively decent sized new area with a very, very high attendance, you need to have a place to put people. And so it was really important for this six train, massive inverting roller coaster to be there to like catch people and like to, to help with overflow. And that was really important. And of course, they rethemed the Flying Unicorn to become the Fly the Hippogriff. But most impressively, they opened their signature dark ride, which was or is. Harry Potter and the, the Forbidden, Forbidden Journey, Journey, which takes you through the castle. I mean, everyone knows at this point that we're big fans of the attraction, but takes you through the castle um, on a tour of Hogwarts with a bunch of little pre-shows that you don't have to wait in, so they get part of the queue. So it's not like other pre-shows where like you have to be forced to stand in a pre-show area. <laughs> you actually move through the queue and you get told a story. And then, of course, there's the highly impressive Cuckoo Arm Dark Ride, where you are always like in the scenes, and it's a nice blending of physical scenes and then screens with incredibly high capacity, um, when running at full capacity, 2,200 people an hour, while every vehicle only carries four people. Super impressive. Um, so yeah, that whole area um, obviously paved the way for Universal's other areas. It's funny because this area was really designed to fit in what the existing infrastructure. So the Three Broomsticks, uh, you know, was actually a repurposed restaurant. The Midway actually followed the same shape of the original Midway. And so they really kind of built Hogsmeade and like the Wizarding World of Harry Potter around what existed as a main artery at Universal's Islands of Adventure. Funny enough, that worked out so well, despite it being kind of narrow and it's always kind of busy, um, that they actually translated that exact same design into every other area they built so far, except for the areas have more pathways running on either side to help with congestion because they do get so congested. So Osaka and Hollywood have a walkway on the backside of the, of the main shops and on the backside of um, the Three Broomsticks. And they have walkways where the entrance and exit of Hagrid are currently, which in Hollywood and Osaka and Beijing are walkways as we're here in Orlando. That's actually reserved to being just the exit entrance locker setup for Hagrid. So the area here is very much narrower because there's only one little way that you can really walk through and there's way more to do because then there's of course Hagrid. It's ironic the way that the bones of Merlinwood at Islands of Adventure live on in all of the other Wizarding World of Harry Potter's. And it's also ironic that Dueling Dragons, which 
had way too much capacity for such a niche ride. Like, even one dueling dragon, like, even if it was just one B&M invert in the back of the park with three train operation, was probably excessive, considering they already had Incredible Hulk at the front of the park. That's neither here nor there. What's interesting is that with Wizarding World of Harry Potter came the droves and droves of people, and it, so upon the opening of Dragon Challenge, uh, the ride finally was putting its, its uh, inca uh, incredible capacity <laughs> to, to a good use. Um, yeah, we're, we're pretty confident that the highest ridership numbers for Dueling Dragons were actually after its Harry Potter retheme. 100%. Despite that being the retheme that's hated by fans and enthusiasts. And yeah. E even, even the Potter crew didn't love the it. The queue was, was stunning it was finally, for Dueling Dragons. It was finally attendance that was so high and it was so busy in the area that the ride actually got like yeah. full trains out continuously. And then it, but and then it's such a shame because like a, a year later with like incidents related to loose articles and injuries and lawsuits and then they had to, they had to change the ride so that it wouldn't duel anymore. And then that really just sucked the whole majesty out of the attraction. With, without Dueling Dragons being able to duel, it just didn't function properly. Its, its whole meaning and its whole brilliance behind the design was just lost in that. So when the ride was demolished, a lot of people were shocked. I wasn't shocked. I think it was inevitable once things like the original queue being lost and the original dueling aspect, it was like bits and pieces. And then when they built Hogwarts Express, like right through the middle of it to accommodate the size of the train station. Yeah, so, so in 2014, when they launched um, Wizarding World of Harry Potter Diagon Alley at the second gate and then built the train, which is its own really impressive attraction because mm -hmm. if you go from oh, Hogsmeade yeah. to Diagon Alley or Diagon Alley to Hogsmeade, both, both directions are a different story that's being told. Yeah. And it really ties the whole world together. If you're a big Potter fan, you can spend the, an entire day, morning to close, just in, in the within world. that bubble, and it's yeah. really, really neat that you can literally just like the morning start your day at Studios, Florida, yeah. and then like go into you know enter London, and then from London you have all you know you have your King's Cross station, and you have of course your Diagon Alley. You can do all that thing, take the train over, and then enter uh, Hogsmeade, and it's just a complete Harry Potter experience, uninterrupted, and you can do it for, like, there's enough to do for a whole day. Whole day. It's, yeah. it's really, really impressive. Uh, anyway, so yeah, train's really, really cool, but with the train station sticking into the ride's plot, it was just, there was more and more yeah. things where, like, it just, it just got, didn't line up. Yeah, the whole identity of the ride, and, and of it course, was just chipped away, Let's be honest, piece by piece. the ride never worked with world building, especially when the focus of world building became more and more important, as now there were other projects out there that were rivaling Potter. Potter, contractually, actually, needs to be the best world building that Universal has, <laughs> per their contract. Yeah. That's a whole long story, but that literally states yeah. in the contract that nothing can be as good as Potter. Yeah. Abbreviated. <laughs> um, so, with the sidelines of dueling dragons facing a, a gas station at the top and of the high list school, hill, it just didn't. Yeah. It didn't work, but it worked. It needed to do. It did what it needed to do, and then they finally got rid of it. Yeah. Um, and they built what's an even more impressive attraction, a more expensive attraction in the same plot. Yeah. The the three hundred million dollar Hagrid's magical creatures motorbike adventure. Um, a massive Intamin family drop slash Intamin family launch slash Intamin uh, motorbike coaster. With moving track pieces, forwards, backwards movements, seven launches. The most seven launches. In the launches world. And just, and, and I, the marketing for the ride was funny because they're like, oh, it's, you know, the world's first story coaster, right? Wasn't that like a phrase that they coined 
more or less for this ride. Yeah, it's still cool. There's still billboards that you know the most thrilling story coaster ever. Or and it really, like that. and really it, but weird. it makes but, sense because this this is the first true unabashed roller coaster that I can think of that has a very pronounced story arc. Beginning, middle, and end. Like even uh, Harry Potter and the Escape from Gringotts doesn't quite tell the story of of something in a roller well, in a in a true roller coaster context. I want to add that real quick and say that the main difference is is that um, most of what we're experiencing in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is seen on the movie. So of course you have yeah um, Harry Potter and Escape from Gringotts that is completely set to the actual movie events of movie seven, mm-hmm. where you're like in that movie and you're actually yeah. witnessing the yeah events. the events of the movie are happening. Alongside, and then the of course of the you have Harry Potter and Journey, where it's like movie like one through four, kind of like all all the elements of those are captured in that ride. And then yeah. you have Fight the Hippogriff, obviously based on the third movie. Um, but then Hagrid is actually a continuation of the universe beyond the movies. So uh, the cool thing is there is uh, aspects of the ride that haven't been discussed in the movies and only in the books that have been brought to life for the first time. But also it doesn't make a mention of anything that happens in the movies, really. It, it, it just kind of treats itself as, like, living beyond what the books and movies have established, and, like, Harry Potter isn't in that ride. Like, all of you... The only people really there are, um... What's Ron's dad again? Is it Arthur? Arthur, Arthur Weasley, and, and Hagrid. Hagrid. So those yeah. are the only two characters that you can really realize. And the rest is all about, like, magical creatures and exploring the Forbidden Forest. And yeah. that's a really unique approach. It, it, it creates a new story that you don't know yet, which I guess makes it even more of a storytelling ride than something. Yet, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know exactly what happens in Green So Games, true, you know? true, true. It was like an amazing story complement, a, 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 a blossoming of a, of a underserved um, aspect of the Harry Potter universe as far as like the films go, because the films can only cover so much. So having things like bringing all of these characters to life in ways that the films either hadn't done yet or hadn't focused on as much as they might have or could have. Another great thing about this attraction is it's very lighthearted. Um, obviously, Harry Potter in all its Harry Potterness is very takes a dark. dark. Turn. <laughs> so, like the two biggest eating attractions before Hagrid were very dark. There is obviously, I mean, Forbidden Journey it's... had to be adjusted. It was actually designed to have a giant tornado of the mentors attacking you in the final Dementor scene and they actually cut it all down and made it really really watered down because it was gonna be too intense. Yeah. And then of course there's there's the whole Voldemort situation over in, in Diagon Alley. Yeah. So like having a ride <laughs> where like from start to finish it's just kind of like goofy. Pleasant. Yeah. Like it combines a lot of movie and, and book aspects and kind of like recognizable pinpoints for you, but you don't really know what you get to expect. Like it's not you know, just the story kind of takes unexpected turns. Uh, but none of it's negative, so yeah. it's, and I really, really enjoy it. The that only, the ride. biggest threats, the only, the only bad guys and magical creatures are just the natural consequences of screwing around with uh, magical creatures and Pretty much. things like Devil's Snare and Blasted at Scroots and, uh, um, but Hagrid, of course, always has your back. You're never in any real danger. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, considering the big shoes that this ride had to fill, um, Hagrid's does all that and more, and of course with with beautiful, near flawless sight lines. Even when we went in 1999, riding Dueling Dragons and cresting the lift hill and just seeing the underbelly of Universal and like that side of Orlando, for all the effort and time and money spent on creating a, a really immersive environment in you know 1.0 Islands of Adventure. We were surprised that so little concern was paid to the sightline aspect of a ride like Dueling Dragons, especially after walking through what was considered by many to be the greatest amusement park ride queue of all time. 
uh, only for you to crest the lift on this ride and be greeted with, you know, industrial stuff that, um, you know, we never actually rode. Like, like giant yeah. AC units yeah. that ride below it. It, it. it was just a really weird vibe. I just can't imagine looking at, no, like, for what we expect from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter now, I just can't even imagine uh, what a bummer it must have been to, like, have that be part of the overall experience, you know, taking you out of it. Uh, against your will when I mean, so much of the park does. Even entering the lift hills and like the brake runs and stuff, but being an invert isn't pretty. Like it's not no. like, you know, it's very industrial. Yeah. And then you have the, the maintenance barn, so you have to pass on the way to the lift hill. It was never putter quality, and I think everyone knew that. And yeah. so I think the writing was on the wall in 2009 when Potter was, you know, like Announced. deep under construction. Yeah. I think the writing was on the wall, and I'm always kind of surprised people were so upset when it left in 2017 because it, it just didn't match what was by then the world's greatest, most detailed and integrated theme park area ever created. I mean, because, you know, then there's also the aspect of the wands that, like, all of the storefronts and all of the land is interactive oh, yeah. with the wands. Like, it was just so far beyond anything that any other theme park had ever done that, like, in true Islands of Adventure fashion, really, really revolutionary. But obviously, Dragon Challenge never really fit in. And so, uh, Hagrid really does. Hagrid takes up... I mean, Hagrid's a much longer experience, does a lot more, and I think it's, it's a really, really great um, replacement. It is worth the long, long wait. It's a queue. It's not Dragon's queue, the original Dragon queue, but it's it's a decent queue. Yeah. There's a lot of little like recognizable things. Um, it you know it kind of creates this new world that nobody knows about, like the, the the abandoned ruins and and stables on you know in the back of Hogwarts that you know don't really exist except for in this universe here in the theme park. So that's something that uh, we gotta really appreciate. But definitely. A really, really good family ride. Yeah, it's it's an it's one of the most substantial roller coasters I can think of. No matter how long your wait might be for Hagrid, you just can't help but come off the ride feeling like you you got your money's worth, you got your time's worth um, from such an amazing experience. I think. Is there anything else we need to cover from Wizarding World in this park anyway? I think. God, there is so much. We could do a whole episode on Wizarding World because I obviously want to talk about it a lot more. But I think we need to focus we on the attractions. We love talking about Forbidden Journey. Of we, could, we talk about Forbidden Journey any chance. But if you are a listener and you know that's been with us for a minute, you don't need us to go talk about yeah. Forbidden Journey anymore because we've already mentioned it like a lot in other episodes. So definitely check out some of our other episodes, and um, you'll um, as a segue into our next island. It is funny to consider that. Uh, Forbidden Journey was built on a plot that was earmarked for Jurassic Park expansion. Because at the time when they were developing the park, of course, Jurassic, Jurassic Park, park was the, was the obvious. They were like, we obviously need not one, but two e-ticket expansion pads just for Jurassic Park. Which made sense because to date it's still Universal's, like, universally owned best Yeah, it's their bread franchise. and butter. For so... Their, and it's just ironic that like both of the earmarked expansion pads for a, a new Jurassic Park e-ticket went to different franchises, but for the Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World e-ticket that would eventually come, they just plopped it right on top of uh, existing infrastructure, and it's and it's like it was always there. So continue your circle. Of course, we're going to start with Velocicoaster, so from one great instrument to the next. Yeah, <laughs> um, Jurassic World's Velocicoaster. We have whole episodes on it, so we're not going to dive into it too deep. But um, this multi-launch, intimate throw coaster does one thing particularly well, and that's by not repeating itself. And we've said this before that Tom was always kind of looked at it from Tazland as like the premier intimate coaster, like the example. 
But really, um, I think Velocicoaster did everything a little bit better by having so many different kinds of experiences within the ride itself. Very well themed, but also has like a you know spaghetti bowl kind of area, and then it has like big elements and big inversions and high speed elements. Um, of course, everyone listening to this podcast knows everything about Velocicoaster already. But really, really great addition. It's kind of wild to me that at any point, this park now, I think, has one of the strongest coaster collections in the world, even though they only have like four coasters. Uh, but mainly because their launch coaster selection is so impressive. You have Incredible Hulk, a launched B&M Looper, very forceful, very classic. Um, you have a launched, sla like, quite thrilling family launch coaster with seven launches, and then you have this crazy intimate um, LIM launch co LSM launch coaster. It's really, really impressive the amount of launches and, and, and the coaster quality of these launch coasters in this park. I think what something that maybe we don't talk about as much in the context of Velocicoaster, uh, but would be good to cover in an episode like this, is just the way that Velocicoaster really elevated and left nothing on the table as far as repurposing land that was already occupied by... Jurassic World, or Jurassic Park infrastructure. Jurassic Park is an area, it was, aside from Lost Continent, the, the biggest area of the park. And if you include the expansion pads, definitely d developed to be the centerpiece for the resort. Um, it, it, not only just the park itself, but really for the whole Universal project. River Adventure, Jurassic Park River Adventure, of course, is still like the the, the signature ride experience, and that ride was many years in the making. With I believe you told me that, that developing the Hollywood one, they started developing the ride right alongside filming, filming principal it, yeah. filming for the first movie. Because uh, they, knew, they knew they had a hit before it was, before it was even born. And um, River Cruise plays a crucial part in the original book um, mm -hmm. from Jurassic Park, so that was all in development for a very long time, and obviously it was such an incredible hit. It was one of those few hits along the timeline of University of Hollywood that really made an impression to the point where, like, it was, you know, it needed to be a thing everywhere. Yeah, it was course, inevitable. They weren't going to launch a new park and not have Jurassic in it. So, so like, things like the Discovery Center, bringing to life other aspects of, of subjects well, seen the in the film. Well, the story for the Universal Isles of Adventure project was that there was a satellite location of the big Jurassic Park. Yeah. So you could experience Jurassic Park in Orlando. It was like a little mini Jurassic Park, but it was all real. Like yeah. It was the same franchise, the same people who ran it. It was like canon. It was it canon. Was, yeah. So even when, still when you ride River Adventure in the queue, it's still like, you know, at Jurassic Park, like you're at Jurassic Park and, you know, you can explore the kitty area uh -huh. at Jurassic Park. Yeah. It's very focused on like you're physically at the Orlando location mm -hmm. of Jurassic Park. Camp Jurassic is... A, still a, an amazing and really well-executed kitty-like play area. This park was always... I think this park really anticipated the needs when it came to building attractions for kids where they can really exert their energy. Because, like, Seuss Landing and uh, Toon Lagoon and Jurassic Park all had these, like, amazing, massive uh, run-around play structures that are, are very detailed, and a lot of care was put into those to make them you know, really substantial and rele relevant to their source material. Um, even though ter <laughs> Terrain on Flyers is such a funny ride, and Universal Creative is still fascinated. Like, they're, they're determined to build a miniature suspended coaster in every park they build, um, even though Terrain on Flyer was, was kind of a mishap, because when it first opened, 
um, the lines were routinely two to three hours because capacity was so low, but everyone wanted to write it. So the following year, they imposed that uh, must-bring-a-child uh, rule. Also, the following year, that was really the main reason that Flying Unicorn got built was because they realized that they needed another kitty coaster, like a proper kitty coaster with decent capacity to take the pressure off of Pteranodon Flyers. Another opening day attraction for Islands of Adventure, one of the, on the short list of opening day Islands of Adventure attractions that are no longer with us, I guess that list is getting steadily longer these days, but the uh, uh, Triceratops Encounter, that's what it was. Triceratops Encounter, which was like a walkthrough outdoor area that would culminate with a series of barns that had Triceratops hanging out in them, chilling, sort of like recreating that scene from the first Jurassic Park movie where they find the uh, the injured Triceratops um, and they're like up close and personal with it, although this is on a much lighter note. I believe there was a baby Triceratops involved, like hatching or something. It was a cute, it was, it was very just like the movie in a sense where like people who saw the movie and wanted to like experience the movie for themselves the the triceratops encounter was absolutely that kind of thing but once the attraction closed i think it closed uh, a few years before they started redeveloping the land for velocicoaster it's amazing how much space there was there that was probably just not again not really being utilized to its full potential um, and from that space, and from the area surrounding the Discovery Center, which also was kind of losing its traction, I feel like once the Harry Potter stuff started coming to Universal, the Jurassic stuff started to lose its attraction. Its attraction. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until Jurassic World that I, suddenly everyone was falling in love with dinosaurs again, and it was time to bring some of that new film franchise, new, tri uh, new trilogy aesthetic to the area, so... It's just a little awkward, because as of right now, the area is a blend of Jurassic World and Jurassic Park, and in ways it works, and in ways it doesn't really work, because the aesthetics are so incredibly different. Very different. Because the original aesthetic is very tropical, and it's Rustic. straw. Yeah. Straw and wood, and, you know, jungly vibes, and then the new aesthetic is very industrial. It's gray, black, blue, um, metal concrete, um, you know, it's very, it's a little darker, and so now you have you main midway, and you have when you come into the land, you have your watering hole um, bar, which is located. So coming from Harry Potter, you go underneath the Jurassic Park arch, and then on your left hand side, you have the watering hole bar, and then you have on your right hand side the well, in the, in right next to it, you have the, the entrance to Jurassic World Velocicoaster, which is kind of themed to the aesthetic of Jurassic Park, the logo. But then when you get to the actual right entrance, it's all Jurassic World. But then continuing on through the area, not going to the entrance of Jurassic World Velocicoaster, you have on the right-hand side restrooms and Pizza Territoria, whatever it's called. Something like yeah, yeah. I so like that the pizza little... restaurant. But then you look at the <laughs> you look at the left-hand side and you see like the giant the Jurassic yeah. World paddock, which is like black and gray and blue. And then you have this little concrete walkway across the across the walkway that you're currently walking on that connects the. Uh, Raptor Encounter, which is also themed to Jurassic World, where you can like you know meet and greet raptors, a little more high action version of what used to be the, yeah, the um, Triceratops, the Triceratops yeah. Encounter area. Um, but that's all really themed and aesthetically appropriate to Jurassic World. But then you keep moving, and on the right hand side is all, uh, and the left hand side are all still Jurassic World, Velocicoaster walls and paddock. But then you have the River Adventure, River Adventure. Like, hugging it with the old tropical wood theme, and then you have the Jura Camp Jurassic, which is wedged between. River Adventure and Velocicoaster, and that's all the old classic thing. Yeah. So even though 
it's all kind of, you know, dinosaur themed. It's a little annoying to me. I mean, I don't want to sound too negative, but I can see that it doesn't really line the up as well. The area definitely it has some love. two identities now. It's very... It'd be different if it was like, okay, you move through one part of the area and it's all Jurassic World. You move through the other part of the area and it's all Jurassic Park. But no, the whole thing is a blend it's of the themes. very blended. And so it's like, okay, are we in the 90s or are we and in the like 2020s? And even itself, canonically acknowledges River Adventure. Which so. I find also very annoying because, they're, <laughs> because on the on break run, it's like, ooh, you know, there's an issue there's over an issue River, River Adventure, Adventure and then oh, oh, like, like, oh, my way. And then it's like, okay, so okay, they tried really hard to put them all together, but thematically it doesn't really work. So I would much matter, uh, I would much rather have them turn the front area of the, of the, of the, of the land, so from Potter all the way up to the Jurassic River Adventure Splash down, I turn out all this Jurassic World and update the dark ride just like I did in Hollywood and make it Jurassic World and then maybe keep the Camp Jurassic Park kind of like the classic theme. Like that would work, it has its own entrance, like it's its own contained bubble. I think, but I think the I rest think of the land might. should be combined. I think it's coming. I, think I wouldn't the be shocked. To be all Jurassic if World. They yeah. Um, although, to, to be fair, uh, for a theme park area themed to a theme park, where being a theme park is the theme, is there anything really more on brand for theme park theming than a theme park area having an identity crisis. Well, but my problem is that like <laughs> half of the attractions aren't themed to being a theme park anymore because Jurassic <laughs> World is being themed to being at the actual Jurassic World campus in the laboratory and you know doing the whole you know. <laughs> that is so kind of funny like, too. The theme for Velocicoaster is a oh little God. confusing. We're gonna dive like, into this are now. We, <laughs> are we front stage or backstage? Like, well, yeah, because like, <laughs> like they build this giant ride. For us to go experience, but then we have to go through like a locker the room, locker room. <laughs> and we go through like the stalls, like the and, and like, we go through the doctor area for like the veterinary area for the dinosaurs. Like it doesn't seem like we're supposed to be there. Like why are we there? It's just like I don't know. I think they really tried theming the queue, and they just came up with ideas so, of like what to put in the queue yeah. to make a theme. But like the story doesn't make any sense when it comes to like navigating your way through the queue. There's no reason that tourists should be allowed to like touch a dinosaur. <laughs> Before like being told by Owen, it's way too dangerous to you know to be in the paddock with them. Um, but also like we thought about this a lot. And, like, you know, it just it all doesn't really add up. But you know, it's a cute cute. It's all right. We're we just, just this is what happens much. when you live in Orlando and you ride this stuff so much and you start things start making themselves known to you in ways that maybe it wouldn't if you were just visiting every couple of months or <laughs> even once a year. Um, so yeah, I guess from here we gotta check out the smallest little island. Skull Island, Reign of Kong. It really isn't much of an island, it's really used to marquee. <laughs> it used to be part, just like how Wizarding World used to be part of Lost Continent, uh, this corner, uh, which was the, the other, other expansion pad for Jurassic Park, um, you used to enter this area right off of Toon Lagoon and it had the big archway for like Welcome to Jurassic Park and it was just a, a tree-laden corridor where you would Eventually, make a right, and you'd be kind of at the threshold. You'd have the the, the restaurant there. What's it called? Like Thunder, Thunder, Thunder Falls. Thunder which Falls, is right next to the water which is right at the splash town, the splashdown for Jurassic Park. So putting a ride here made a lot of sense. When Islands of Adventure first opened, having Jurassic Park River Adventure where it was, and then like the distance to that ride from other major rides was kind of long, especially on the Toon Lagoon side. Um. So, the, and the park also sorely needed more dark rides, so these expansion pads for what would eventually become Forbidden Journey and Skull Island, it, it really, they really made smart choices by making these indoor dark rides. And Skull Island is such a cool ride because it's like a spiritual successor to the Confrontation ride. 
from Universal Studios Florida, which is sorely missed. Um, and again, a great indoor, a much-needed indoor attraction for uh, a park like this that's mostly outdoor rides, so that when there is a, you know, an Orlando thunderstorm moment, um, there's still technically things to do uh, in the park. Also, aesthetically, it works really well. It doesn't feel like it sticks out um, from the general Jurassic Park vibe too much. My only real complaint is that we lost the Jurassic Park, like the iconic Jurassic Park entrance on that side of the park. Um, it's right where the turnaround, the outdoor turnaround is for Skull Island, so it was all demolished and, and redeveloped. Skull Island is a good ride. Um, it, it's mostly a, a repackaging and, a, and with, with more theming and like a really detailed queue and like a little pre-section, but it's more or less the Reign of Khan sequence from the uh, Hollywood tram tour, the Universal Studios Hollywood tram tour. It's, it continues the... the um, the honored tradition of Universal Studios Florida taking tram tour sequences and turning them into individual e-ticket rides. It definitely worked out better here than it did for Fast and Furious. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, this was this was happening at around the same time. In fact, didn't this one open before Fast and Furious? Did, which is so, so Which is so, it's, it's so, Fast and Furious is such a pathetic execution of a very similar premise of taking that tram tour sequence, the dynamic attraction, like, surrounding you, uh, screen sequence. Skull Islands just, just makes so much more sense. It just works so much better. It has animatronics and... Oh, yeah. It, that, has, that, like, it, it goes outside for a little bit, only if the weather is permitted. It, it rains, feels it like a proper, full experience. People love it. People are crazy about this ride. The capacity for this ride is immense, and yet it draws substantial cues. Um, people love this like classic universal sort of vibe. People can get really burned out on on Harry Potter and even you know Jurassic Park and Transformers and stuff. There's 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 universal purists that really crave just a a, a legacy Universal Studios experience that predates the phenomenons of the '90s and 2000s. And Skull Island um, can definitely get you your fix in that regard. In that regard. And then next up, um, right next to it, there's maybe like the most star contrast <laughs> of themes, is um, Toon Lagoon, which is... At least the sight lines are good. A lot more flat, a lot more colorful, but also um, a water ride heaven. So the first ride you'll see when you enter Toon Lagoon um, from the Jurassic Park area and you face right, you will see the massive, unmistakable Dudley Do-Ride Dripsaw Falls, the dueling drop... Lock flume from Mac, really long, very thing. wet, very wet, but that's just, you know, a theme for Orlando theme parks. Yeah. The Q, uh, the, the ride itself is obviously themed to Dudley Do-Ride, which is a Canadian He's a mountain <laughs> ranger kind of character. Old newspaper comics is the vibe here. Um, and so um, that water ride, the Q itself, it's very basic. This is definitely the part of the park where I feel like cartoons are, everything is very 2D, everything is very flat. There is theming. Um, obviously, it's better themed than, than your average Six Flags ride. Don't get me wrong, um, but it's uh, it's a little less intricate, a little less detailed, a little more basic, a little more where I feel like the budget dropped off. Very budget. It was like a ride. So Jurassic Park and Lost Continent and Port of Entry are going to get all the budget, and yeah. obviously Marvel's going to get some budget because you know that's a franchise they had to buy out yeah. for a lot for a little bit more money. Um, but this area is, I really feel like where you know the budget was a little lower, and they could spend a lot more on the hardware than they did on. Making it look cute. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. This area of the park was kind of a necessity. The fact that Islands of Adventure had the opening day roster that it had was 
unbelievable. There were so many spectacular e-ticket rides. And part of the way that they were able to afford this was they got very clever um, with the franchises that they chose. Some money, you know, went to some places because of the intellectual properties and the licensing. Some money went to some areas because they're recreating stuff from scratch that's not based on an intellectual property. Toon Lagoon really was like the easiest and really the cheapest area to put together, uh, aside from the ride hardware. It was the first area of the park that they were able to really get some, some vertical work on because they didn't have to wait around for, um, you know, to be... It wasn't like Dr. Seuss where things took years for them to, to get greenlit on. Even uh, Marvel Superhero Island was originally a DC Comics-themed area, and there was, there's dozens of concepts of when that area of the park was, was Batman and or Superman-themed. Um, and really, it was Six Flags. The Time Warner era of Six Flags completely pulled the rug out of that um, opportunity. So Marvel was actually the second choice because uh, they weren't really doing so hot in the media spectre, uh, sector by comparison. Uh, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Toon Lagoon and Marvel together kind of make up. They make up the comic strip area of the park. Um, huge hit with like the older audience. There's definitely people like my parents' age that love this area of the park because they remember reading these comics when they were kids. Dudley Do-Right. Popeyes is still a much more culturally significant. Popeyes is something that we know in Europe. That's something that people, but Dudley Do-Right is. And I think Dudley Do-Right, they took a chance on Dudley Do-Right. In 1999, a live-action Dudley Do-Right movie starring Brendan Fraser came out. And that was a huge tie-in with like marketing Islands of Adventure, too. They used Islands of Adventure to market that movie because of the Dudley Do-Right ride, and then the movie was used to market Islands of Adventure because of the Dudley Do-Right ride. Um, to this end, it's really, Dudley Do-Right has just, people know Dudley Do-Right because of the ride, because the ride is so remarkable, and that's fine. It, it kind of reminds me of Bugs Bunny and how, like, little kids and stuff, or like Snoopy, little kids go to Six Flags Parks and Cedar Fair Parks, and they're introduced to these characters for the first time. They may not have any other environment where they're exposed to them. Unlike the people who developed these lands who were like, oh, we're going to theme these characters based on these really popular television and newspaper characters that we see all the time because they're so popular and everyone loves them. So it still works in, a, in its own way. It doesn't work the way it was originally intended for, for Deadly Do-Right, but people can still go and like see this, this universe that, that the comic strip created, and it keeps it alive. It keeps it sustained uh, in, a, in a unique way. There's a lot of people who often talk about re-theming Dudley Do-Right and, and by extension re-theming Toon Lagoon into something that's maybe more marketable, but I don't know if it's, it's as necessary as it is just like, you know, there's probably more pressing issues resort-wide that could be addressed before they really feel like they need to just take the axe to all of Toon Lagoon. And it's still a likable area. It's also kind of like Dr. Seuss in the sense where it's very family-friendly, kid-friendly, and, and quintessentially American. Um, and a kind of experience that you can only, only, only get uh, at Islands of Adventure. Um, the, the midway in this area with, like, the shops and dining and stuff is a treat. Like, it's so colorful and delightful and just and just different and a very quintessential universal Islands of what Adventure What I think is nice experience. about this area is that um, even though there is a main midway that cuts through the land, that's actually not the only midway that the land has. The land is kind of like a plus sign where you have two major walkways intersecting. There's the one major walkway that goes to the park, and then there's the walkway that connects 
um, Marsha of the Olive, and then the whole water walkway area from which you can take great pictures of Velocity Coaster, uh-huh. and then look at everyone getting wet at yeah. Popeye, and yeah. then all the way across to the entrance of um, the Do Ride, which is located way underneath the drop. So, like, it, it's funny, there's actually a major walkway that crosses straight through the area, um, and it's one of the few areas that actually has, like, a crosswalk, because all the other areas follow the natural movement of the main midway, but this area actually has, like, its own yeah, kind it's like of like, other yeah. midway that intersects the flow midway that everything else in the park follows, so that's kind of cool. It is a dynamic area for the park, and it's bigger than I really, than I ever think to give it credit for, oh, it because of bigger. the giant midways that connect um, the like walking, and water like rides. Walking space-wise, it's actually larger than... Um, the next area we're going to talk about, yeah. which is the infamous Marvel Superhero Island, located right off to the right, sorry, left of the entrance. So when you come in, it's actually towards the left. So we're kind of completing our loop of islands of adventure right now. I feel like this area is kind of the bread and butter, like hood ornament of the park. And even though Marvel areas are starting to materialize at Disney parks, this again is still a very unique experience to not just Universal parks, but this particular Universal park. It served as the blueprint for very thrill-oriented, action-oriented areas of other Universal parks, such, such as, as Sci-Fi Univers- City yeah. and, and the Transformers, Transformers Metro Base. Metro Base yeah. um, this area of the park is just the yeah. Is if, the if, you, icon. if your park has a major standing looping coast that also touches the water, it's inspired by this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's this area is just is just banging. Like for an area that was so successful right out the gate and just really captured people. This area could be credited with with helping jumpstart the cultural fascination that we now have with the Marvel universe and Marvel characters because bringing well no I would rather say the timing was just right because um, the budget of Universal was tighter and tighter and they wanted to do something with comics. Obviously, you can't have comics and not have superheroes so about Marvel because of the whole Six Flags already having DC and Warner media yeah. kind of situation yeah. going on. Um, and then they paid for those and they established some clear boundaries, which is really really clever. Uh, because they have an exclusivity west of the, sorry, east of the Mississippi yeah. on using Marvel licensing um, particular franchises. Of course, it doesn't include like Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, uh, because that's going to Disney. But yeah. Disney couldn't use the Hulk or couldn't use Captain America in their Florida Spider-Man. theme parks. Spider-Man, yeah. So that's really great because now they, you know, they've got the timing right, they got the logistics right, they got the loss right. And now, you know, a whole 20 years later when Marvel was... So it's really started to pick up steam. It yeah. was getting really big, um, or now really is 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 picking up steam. Is really big. They have this like really marketable thing that they bought for like pennies on yeah. the dollar. But I would, I would still really say good. that like this th- was very co- this whole area for American audiences was very culturally impactful. It certainly was for me. I didn't have really a lot of experience with these characters and movies like the the Sony Spider Man movies, which would come out just a few years after Islands of Adventure open. Um, even those kind of, for me, pale in comparison to the impact that like the Spider-Man ride had. Because when you think about the amazing Spider-Man ride at Islands of Adventure, not only was it the most remarkable and technologically advanced dark ride ever built, but the story was great, and it really brought Spider-Man to life in a, in a, in a substantial way that we had not yet seen like in movies, for example. Not, we, we hadn't seen Marvel characters animated in this way. And it created this opportunity for audiences to experience Spider-Man as a character and Doc Ock as a character. And I really think that opened up... Like, beyond just on paper? Yeah, just beyond comics. Like, this was really... They really... The source material was really definitely an inspiration here. Spider-Man is like the original Haggard's Magical Creatures type approach. 
to taking an environment and a world that exists, but writing your own story for it that's built around this ride. And it was just a slam dunk. That ride still today is... I mean, I go back and forth between Forbidden Journey and, and Spider-Man, but Spider-Man just really does it for me every time. I still feel exactly the way I did when I wrote it in 1999 and was just completely gobsmacked at what they accomplished with it. The whole area, I think, has aged pretty well. I think with the exception of Doctor Doom's Fearfall, which at the time was an impressive choice, but now just the SNS Tower is way too ubiquitous of a regional park attraction. And uh, even Disney went through that same experience with Malaboomer, like building this attraction that like seemed really interesting on paper in the early 90s and mid-90s when nobody had drop towers. And now it's like, well, great. Like every Six Flags and Cedar Fair Park has these SNS towers. It doesn't quite feel like the experience that it was when it opened. Um, but we still have Hulk. We still have Hulk. Rebuilt, revitalized. Gosh, that was that was another thing that was like, Waiting for the other shoe to drop with doing dragons was when they demolished Hulk and rebuilt it from the ground up because they said that the ride was pretty much exceeding its service life and they wanted was, to remodel it. There was it. a weird period where like coasters weren't a thing at that park and that was oh, like yeah. a coaster destination. It is a coaster destination. Yeah. yeah. Totally surreal. Um, but yeah, Incredible Hulk, which saw a total cosmetic remodel with the rebuilding of it in 2018, I think. The theme changed a little bit. Originally, it was you were playing the role of Bruce Banner. Um, experimenting and becoming the Hulk for the first time. Now we are test subjects or volunteers, which I feel like is such a, a common thread with Universal rides. Is we're always volunteering for shit. Yeah. We're always test subjects. We're always guinea pigs for like some thing. We always wind up right place, right time, or wrong place, wrong time, depending on who you ask. And the, the main characters of these franchises are always asking us to do stuff and making us do things. And Hulk is just another <laughs> installment in that in that. Um, school of thought. Uh, but yeah, still a great, solid, remarkable coaster to this day. has aged so well. It's aged so well, in fact, that it was a great choice to anchor the thrill ride component of Universal Studios Beijing with their um, Decepticoaster. Which is by far a more modern, more fluid approach to the ride layout, yes. but yes, it is very heavily yeah. inspired. Yeah, it's, it's the same inspired. sequence of events and the same, technically, the same ride uh system but just a little a little updated um but yeah it's a it's a good place to end your day or your your adventure at Highlands of adventure or a good place to start depending on on which way you go i think it really depends on what kind of visitor you are because if you're much more into the the thrill rides and the dark rides and you know you're maybe a little more mature of an audience then obviously i'd say start at this part of the park and make your way around because the first half of the whole circle going in the opposite direction is going to be kitty areas and um, standing with an operating attractions and show buildings uh, and, you know, places to buy food before you get to Potter where the action really kind of starts. So if you're, you know, in it to win it and you want to you wanna hit all these attractions, obviously I would say turn right, sorry, turn left when you come inside, start with Marvel Superhero Island. Um, personally, I'm someone who would start with Potter just because I think when you look at the crowds, first of all, Potter opens, if, if, it, if it opens early at this particular park, because it depends on the day, either, either Diagon Alley or Hawksmead open early, depending on the day, for special pass holders and for resort guests. So there may already be some people in Potter. So if you really want to hit stuff that doesn't have a line, yes, you can start with um, Incredible Hulk Coaster, for example, or Spider-Man. But I still think it's smart to get to Potter early in the day, because that's just one of those areas that doesn't die down. Um, if there's like an hour and a half, two hour line for Hagrid at 10 in the morning, there'll be a two hour, two hour line for Hagrid 
at 5 p.m. It just kind of doesn't really die down at any point, especially not with their evening shows. And there's a show for Halloween, and there's a show for the holidays, and there's a summer show. There's always a castle projection show going on, yeah. which really <laughs> makes the area even worse to be in. So I say, like, knock out Potter early if you can, um, especially because Hagrid will be a little more finicky, but also will by far have the longest line on resort, and that is continuously the case. Uh, and then make your way kind of, you know, to Philosophy Coaster and, and then your way around back to um, to Incredible Hope. But if you really want to hit something and you don't really care about Potter as much, um, Marvel Superhero Islands is a, great, is a great area to start. It has the true old bones still of, of Islands of Adventure where it's comics themed and um, Spider-Man is the original legacy attraction, I think, for this whole whole park. So you can't go wrong in either direction. It just depends on, like, how eager you are to get on stuff without lines or how eager you get... You know, you are to get the Potter stuff out of the way, I think. Totally. Uh, but yeah, overall, one of our favorite theme parks. It is incredible how much they packed into this park. Makes us really feel like University of Florida next door is really missing something. Very. <laughs> like, we just, honestly, we don't even go to USF that much anymore. We go with when there's friends over there, or we go for our occasional Diagon Alley run. But honestly, um, besides E.T. and Diagon Alley and The Mummy occasionally, I'm really not that drawn to that park anymore. And um, Islands of Adventure, there's just so much to do. It is... Such a great world building. We all know that the whole studio thing is just kind of, it's a theme, but it's not one that necessarily has legs forever, unless you are a company like Universal that actually has physical studios in Hollywood. Works a little better for me there than it does anywhere else. Um, but Islands of Adventure is, is, is a themed park, you know, true and true. And every land really is immersive, much unlike the gate next door. So um, I think it's probably the strongest park. Maybe even in the U.S. Maybe besides Disneyland. I think it probably, yeah. This Disneyland's is Disneyland. Disneyland's a little too stacked, but I think yeah. the lands here are a little better defined. Yeah. So it's a really, really, really high praise for Islands of Adventure. Totally. The only downside that I'm going to have to discuss is it doesn't handle crowds well. It's congested. It gets so congested. The main midway around the park is also the main midway through the lands. And Potter is a choke point. Jurassic Park is a choke point. Um... That There's whole back corner of the choke park. Points, now and it's a little <laughs> it's like, annoying because I'm like, oh my god, like I just wanna, I just wanna walk. <laughs> I don't wanna yeah. stand still. Like it's so busy and packed, and people are trying to take pictures on the bridge of Hogwarts. It's all really cute and love that for them, um, but it's just like there, there is not a lot of walking space. And luckily, the bridge between Lost Continent and Velocicoaster kind of helped alleviate it a little bit. But it'll always be too swamped and potter for you to easily walk through, especially when they separate you between writers and viewers of the show and Hagrid and the people going to the bridge and in the one-way traffic situation. It's like Anaheim Fantastic. It's a total universe. Disneyland. So I mean, moment. you know, Disneyland and Islands of Adventure probably the most immersive, densely packed, action-filled, money for you know, like value for your money kind of parks in this country. But they both also really deal with crowd control issues. Yeah. Um, so I had to throw it in there because I don't want you showing up to Universal and being like, <laughs> oh my god, it's so crowded. Yeah. What do I do? How do I get around here? That's just part of the Islands of Adventure experience, I'd say. Even with the Velocicoaster Bridge that they built that just connects Sinbad's Bazaar straight to Velocicoaster, sometimes they close it because they just, they don't want people to like not walk through Hogsmeade and spend money. And I'm like, you know, there's not a shortage of people who came to Florida specifically for Hogsmeade. You don't need to force people to, through that funnel, like you don't have to make people look at Harry Potter. Like people Luckily, are going to spend money. Though. I've seen a bridge open pretty much always now. <laughs> oh, that's uh, it goes good. open, yeah. but like yeah, early in the, in, in the testing. And it took way too long days, for them yeah. to open it, and I was and I was so mad. I'm like, you know, th you really need this artery. Like you don't need to funnel 
every human being I still being think the biggest Hogsmeade. problem with this Hogsmeade, like we discussed earlier, is that like there's two walkways to the land. One is completely reserved for Hagrid's exit lockers only, and the other one is where everyone has to be pushed through. While all the other lands have like three walkways. Yeah. So that really kind of makes a difference yeah. there. Um, but overall, though, that's just kind of nipping at some of the little things we don't necessarily love about Islands of Adventure. <laughs> but overall, like we said, one of the greatest parks out there. Um, definitely in, in the top three, I think, in the U.S. when it comes to quality um, for the money they could spend there. So if you go to Florida, you really there really isn't much of an excuse, especially when listening to this podcast and a theme park <laughs> and roller coaster enthusiasts, to not spend money on going to Universal's yeah. Islands of Adventure. 100%. And with that, we're going to actually ride Iron Gwazi tomorrow. Um, so by the time this comes out, we may have already done Rosie, or not quite, like, not, not quite yet. We don't know yet, but we'll uh, we'll report back to you in a podcast episode. Lots of stuff on our social media. Follow us on TikTok. We're big TikTokers. Go like our multi-million view videos. We're trying to get more viral. Yeah. Uh, we've got our Instagram accounts, Region Pacific. Of course, thecoastofkings.com. Follow us on Facebook. All that good stuff, and we'll catch you on the next show. See you soon. Bye.